Welcome to the Judgment Call Podcast, a podcast where I bring together some of the most curious minds on the planet. Risk takers, adventurers, travelers, investors, entrepreneurs, and simply mind bogglers. Find all episodes of this show. Simply go to Spotify, iTunes, or YouTube, or go to our website, judgmentcallpodcast.com. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or subscribe to us on YouTube. This episode of the Judgment Call Podcast is sponsored by Mighty Travels Premium. Full disclosure, this is my business. What we do at Mighty Travels Premium is to find the airfare deals that you really want. Thousands of subscribers have saved up to 95% in the airfare. Those include $150 round-trip tickets to Hawaii for many cities in the US, or $600 life-led tickets in business class from the US to Asia, or $100 business class life-led tickets from Africa round-trip all the way to Asia. In case you didn't know, about half the world is open for business again and accepts travelers. Most of those countries are in South America, Africa, and Eastern Europe. To try out Mighty Travels Premium, go to mightytravels.com slash MTP, or if that's too many letters for you, simply go to MTP, the number four, and the letter U.com to sign up for your 30-day free trial. Ben, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thanks for doing oh, thank this. Thank you. I'm excited to be on it. Are we live right now or when does it start? We are live, so okay. to speak. No, uh, cool. it, it goes live a couple of days later, right? Okay. So this isn't directly streamed live, um, but we will have it online in, uh, next week probably. Okay. So I saw your startup, which I thought is pretty awesome, neighborly. And uh, it to me, it seems like an Airbnb, but for commercial real estate. And since commercial real estate is into this huge upheaval right now, I obviously was very curious what you guys are up to and how you got into doing the startup in the first place. Yeah. So, so in a lot of ways, it is um, like an Airbnb, but in a lot of ways, not in the sense that we're, we're actually managing these spaces. Um, so what we learned over time uh, was that one of the most important things to create a Airbnb for commercial real estate is to actually heavily manage the experience in the space. Why is that? Uh, because you don't have people living right in a commercial space. You don't have a lot of hands-on people in commercial spaces, usually ones that are vacant, uh, which are the types of properties that we help uh, to activate. You know, these are, these are, these are commercial properties that really don't have a lot of people associated with them. So a lot of companies and startups and founders have tried to create a carbon copy of Airbnb for commercial real estate. And in a lot of ways, I don't believe it's possible because it doesn't have the, you know, the care and the attention and the love behind the property that a residential house does. So in Airbnb, you have a real human being, usually at least in some tangential way associated with the property who's taking care of it, or you have a property management company that's taking care of it on a daily basis. With commercial real estate, you, you really don't have that usually. Um, and so what we learned over time was to make that concept work for commercial real estate, it, it really requires um, a group of people uh, or a company to be heavily involved in that space. So, so in a lot of ways, we're creating kind of an Airbnb-esque service, but on the back end, we're operating it more like Sonder or a WeWork or something like that, where we're 
we're furnishing the spaces ourselves. We're cleaning them. We're resetting them. We're uh, taking care of all the utilities. We're really kind of creating the optimal experience to rent a commercial space um, so that the, the end user doesn't have to worry about uh, the Wi-Fi speed or, you know, the comfort of the chairs. We want to make sure all that stuff is consistent uh, and up to a high quality so that you know when you book a neighborly, whether that's in Cow Hollow, San Francisco, or uh, Santa Monica in, in Los Angeles, you're getting a, a consistent experience and something that you can depend upon. And what we realized was one of the the lacking aspects of the Airbnb for commercial real estate idea is that you end up with this very uh, extensive list of commercial properties and every single one of them is offering you some type of very different experience. Um, and if you're going to have a meeting or a pop-up or you're going to host a podcast event, you want to know uh, in advance what it is you're getting into and you want to be able to depend on that service provider to give you a level of, of quality so that you know that your podcast event is going to go well, right? If you brought together 20 people and you went live, you need these chairs, tables, fast Wi-Fi, you need to get access to the space, it needs to be clean. There's all these things that are of more importance when you invite 20 people to that space than if it's just you and your partner checking into an Airbnb and, you know, at the beach. So there's just a lot more complexity and I think seriousness involved with operating a commercial version of Airbnb. And so over time, really that, that's that's what we've kind of come to, to focus on is finding uh, the supply side of the marketplace, which are landlords, commercial landlords with vacant space. And of course, there's lots of demand on the, on the, on the user side because people need space for pop-ups, for meetings, for events, uh, you name it, for film shoots, for, uh, for all kinds of things creative uh, photography sessions. People need commercial space to rent flexibly, but uh, the supplier side just isn't ready yet to think about their properties as being places that can be used short-term. So that's where we come in at Neighborly and make sure that that um, supply side is matched with the end user expectations and make sure that that quality space and experience is delivered consistently. Um, when I think of Neighborly, I think of a clean office, so something that is, as you said earlier, is a chair and then is a, is a fast Wi-Fi. Or can I also set up, I don't know, my catering kitchen there? You can also do that. So the way, the way that we think about the business, and that's evolved over time, we, we started with just one small uh, storefront. To, to answer your previous question about kind of how we got into this and why we do it, um, it's that we really believe that there is a massive opportunity to activate all of these vacant kind of street level commercial spaces that are currently uh, sitting empty and provide no economic utility to neighborhoods, to citizens or to the landlords themselves. And what we believe is that there is a chance to reframe the way that we look at commercial real estate. Currently the industry uh, works on a binary uh, timeline, right? In a binary uh, perspective, which is that it's either vacant, which is zero, or it's fully leased, which is hitting the property goals. Uh, when they look at a particular space, landlords, that is, that's what they look at. Is it leased or is it not leased? End of story. And what we see is that a lot of uh, new entrepreneurs, 
a lot of younger people, this kind of new generation that's come up with Airbnb and the sharing economy, they don't think about real estate or spaces in the same way that people used to look at them in the past. So people expect to be able to rent a store like I'm in right now in San Jose for a day or for a weekend or a week or maybe some, you know, just a holiday period. But, but uh, I think there's a whole generation of commercial real estate uh, users and customers who are expecting there to be flexibility and flexible options. And there just isn't. That's not how the commercial real estate industry has been financed, built and operated over the last hundred years. It's been very much that binary system of long lease or vacant. And if it's not leased, then we keep it vacant until someone else leases it. And that can be years. And so, uh, so what really, I think, sparked our curiosity, I, I started the business with my brother uh, five years ago. What sparked our curiosity was all these empty storefronts in our neighborhood in Berkeley where the economy is thriving. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of household uh, income. There's a lot of spending in the neighborhood. So why should there be vacant, nice little storefronts available for entrepreneurs to start businesses? Why is there so much vacancy? Uh, and that was five years ago, of course. So much uh, healthier times for, for small business than now. And there was still a problem five years ago. And so we, we, we've been through so many iterations of what Neighborly is, but at the end of the day, it's a mission to, to find ways to activate these vacant commercial real estate spaces and make them usable uh, for people in different ways. And, and um, you know, that's a, that's a, I think that's a worthy mission. It's, it's very hard, but the commercial real estate industry is, the, is set up to be the antithesis of this and where we want to break that system or at least just like adjust that system is to say we at neighborly believe that spaces should be operated on a time continuum not on a binary uh, continuum so we, we, we basically want to say you should be able to rent any space for as, as long as you need to and the word vacant Actually, I believe it's possible to get rid of that word. I, I, yeah. I generally do. I think that I think that we can look at spaces as being short-term rentable or long-term leased, and we shouldn't say it's a vacant space because someone needs that space today. Someone needs it for next weekend. Maybe it's not a long-term lease, but uh, let's 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 try to imagine a world where all of our spaces are actually usable, um, and and that's kind of what we're up to. Yeah, maybe that also leads us a little bit to the sources of what's going on. I felt when COVID hit, there were already there was already a big trend underway that people would retreat from physical locations, not to hang out. That those were certainly still lively, but the ones that acted as a definite commercial real estate, they existed, but they were they were definitely retreating, as you said. That happened not just in Berkeley; it happens all over the country, and. When COVID hit, I was really surprised how readily people were were cloudifying themselves. They were ready to go home. Yeah, it was a shock. But then, you know, once it settled in, they said, well, being at home isn't actually that bad. So I'd rather stay at home for safety reasons. But I think they also felt really comfortable with it. Mm -hmm. And for me, it is... The question is a little bit, why did that happen? Is commercial real estate too expensive? Is it too inflexible, as you just said? Is it 
just not needed anymore because the opportunities given to most startups or to most new businesses these days, they're actually in the cloud. They don't really exist in a, in a day-to-day person-to-person business anymore. Yes, these cases exist, but they're getting less and less big opportunities. Um, and whenever you see a billion-dollar startup, it's usually completely in the cloud. Um, mm-hmm. I haven't seen one that is really has tons of real estate in a long time. And I was really surprised when Apple brought out stores. I remember 15 years ago, because I always felt like they would never go for this. And then they did, and it was a very new concept, and it worked. But now, you know, basically, it's only pickup. Um, and mm-hmm. I felt like, well, they can afford it, right? They have enough customers. It doesn't really matter if they pick up only or if there's a long line or not. Apple, Apple they sell enough laptops. So what I'm curious to find out, is there like a secular crisis of commercial real estate? And if so, where did it come from? I think there very much is a, a crisis in commercial real estate. I don't think most of the traditional players uh, would admit that because it's easier to cover your eyes and hope for the best. As soon as you admit that, it's kind of a domino effect of uh, what to do <laughs> and what the impacts are and and how to recover from, from what's happened. So I, in a lot of ways, I, I, I believe that uh, there is a crisis and it has been a crisis for the last 12 months, yet you don't see the major firms ringing those bells and admitting that. Um, and that makes sense, right? Like why, you, you don't admit an early death to your concept or your, or your business or your financial model unless you absolutely have to. And uh, I think that there's a lot of, um, there's just a lot of fear in the industry to even admit that. And I think to, for the industry to, to get stronger and to recover and to build something new for the future, the first step uh, is admitting, right? You, you, you have to admit that there is a structural problem. And um, by admitting that, you can start to conceive of new ideas, new business models, other ways in which you could build value into your commercial real estate company. And I think the longer you cover your eyes and pretend that there's not a problem, Yes, you may be able to avoid near-term pain, near-term uncomfortable conversations, uh, financial restructuring, all the types of things that would come from admitting such a large uh, seismic shift in the industry. But the longer you wait, the more painful it's going to be. And so I, I think absolutely there's a crisis. Where did it come from? Mm. It definitely came from the rise of software, right? The, the, the rise of the ability for the cloud to allow people to connect, to transact, to very efficiently start businesses, operate businesses, hire people for employees and workers to work in the cloud. All that is possible now. Um, you know, and I, I think that came a lot faster than commercial real estate was expecting. Um, and so they've, they've definitely been caught flat-footed. And when I say they, I mean, we're, we're in the same, we're in the same field, but we take a fundamentally different approach, which is to say cloud is first. That's just the reality. Most new businesses being built are being built in the cloud first. If they need commercial real estate to further monetize their business, like Apple, they will use commercial real estate to enhance their profitability. But it's not, it's not required like it was in 1960. If you wanted to have a, a grocery business, you needed to acquire commercial real estate and open grocery stores. Now is 
there are many companies that operate grocery businesses in the cloud, like Milk Run, for example, in Portland. It's a that's a grocery delivery business. It's basically a, a natural grocer that in 1960 would have been a store, and now it's just run on the cloud by connecting farms to to end users. And so, can you start a grocery startup now with no physical real estate? Yes. Um, you know, you might need a little bit of uh, warehousing and, and distribution locations, but you don't need an actual store. So your physical uh, real estate needs are diminished. The, the amount of money you put into commercial real estate is diminished. Um, and that is possible. And not only is that possible, that is where the growth in a lot of retail is coming from are these cloud first uh, new businesses. And so to answer your question, why is there, why is there a, a crisis? It's, it's certainly that. Uh, it's certainly the fact that you don't need commercial real estate. It's a, it's a, yeah. I think it's an, an, uh, something that can augment your business and help you in certain ways, but it's definitely not something you need. Um, yeah, and, something and for, that usually that comes, to the, it comes to the rescue of, of, of that problem is the prices drop, right? So you mm -hmm. have suddenly a higher supply and the demand is, or the supply stays stable, but the demand is dropping off. So we should see real estate uh, being really cheap. Now, I don't see this in San Francisco. Maybe it's being renegotiated and maybe it's happened and I don't see it yet. But from the quotes that I've seen in the last couple of months for commercial real estate, they're not that cheap. So I feel mm -hmm. like a lot of landlords are ready to sit it out for a little longer and just wait until the good times come back, so to speak, and I can sell another one-year lease, two-year lease, three-year lease. It's a huge commitment, so several hundred thousand dollars of commitments. In something that a lot of companies now, as you just said, it's very optional to them. It's, it's good to have good real estate, but it's absolutely not required. Mm -hmm. And I think the prices haven't really, they don't really reflect that change in this, this changed mindset yet. Yeah, because, because the industry is very intertwined, right? So you have most of these buildings are actually owned by banks or pension funds. Uh, you know, they're highly leveraged. So to actually agree upon a, an economic shift or a price uh, readjustment to, to reality, you have to get so many stakeholders on board with that plan. And everyone's going to have to take a haircut in some way or another. Uh, so you've got building operators, you know, that have 20, 30% ownership of the building. And then you have the mortgage holders, banks, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, what have you, uh, who, who own the majority of the equity in a building and, 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 you know, are holding the mortgages. So you, you have those two main players that first of all, first of all, have to agree that it's okay to reduce the rental prices of their property which have been bankrolled based on a uh, rent roll from four or five years ago from projections of in better times or different times at least uh, that may or may not be true anymore. And so to admit that your entire financial model is now off by let's say 10, 20, perhaps even 30%, which I think is, is what we may see that that's a that's a discussion and an agreement which I, I don't think is going to happen uh so what what i think is more than likely going to happen is uh, there's going to be kind of a slow adjustment just based on the fact that how long are you willing to have your building sit open or stay vacant how long are you willing to have your retail condo not leased to what point are you going to keep paying taxes and taking losses where you decide that hey we should probably reduce the the lease price on this by thirty or forty percent, and then maybe someone will take it. I think that supply and demand 
reaction will occur. And I think that's probably the way it'll, it'll have to occur because I don't think anyone is going to take a proactive step to take a 20% haircut on their building value or their leases. I think they're going to have to be forced to do that. And that's a brutal process and it's going to be very slow and way too slow. And that is, in my opinion, one of the biggest problems with the industry is that it will take the slowest route every time in my experience because of how it's structured and because of history and because of the, the leadership in the industry, it's built on very conservative traditional values and practices. And that's not just going to change overnight. So I think what you're going to see is just this come to Jesus moment, you know, for, for years on years and prices slowly coming down, but you won't see what is probably appropriate to do, which is kind of a, a step change, a quick step change, hit the market with a lower price, fill the buildings back up, get businesses going again, prove the value of commercial real estate, get people leasing again, and, and, and then let's start working on building the prices back up as you prove the value. But I, I just, I think you see high prices in SF only because, uh, because no one wants to, to face the reality of their, their properties being worth less than they probably are. Yeah. When we look at another example in your industry, we work that really ran into trouble with long-term liabilities. You know, they lease these places for three years, normal lease in many of those locations, and they are often prime locations. And then they had short-term income that they derived from people that they signed up for the virtual offices. And it does make sense when you, when you go closer to maturity, when you're at 70, 80% um, rate of usage. But until then, you have the full lease that you pay for, but you don't really have income that you set against. And they ran into lots of new centers. You, they ran into a lot of trouble. How do you guys solve this? How do you stay away from this place you don't want to be in? Long, lots of long-term liabilities and very short-term income. Yes. Yeah, so, so that was the crucial part of our evolution last year during uh, the pandemic, which is we used to actually follow that same model. So we were leasing our neighborly locations, uh, mostly from local landlords, signing three to five year leases and paying flat rent. And the whole game was, okay, now let's make it a flexible space and let's rent it by the hour, which is what we used to do. So sometimes we would have two to three groups of people uh, in one space in one day and we would change that space over. So it might be a corporate meeting in the morning, it might be a panel speaker engagement in the afternoon, and then it might be uh, a wedding reception in the evening, like in one tiny storefront. And and, and that was actually quite common for us. Um, and that was the game that we were playing, the same game as WeWork, which is short-term income that's not guaranteed against uh, a long-term lease with fixed monthly payments that is guaranteed. Uh, so it was a it was a risky game to play, and and you saw what happened to WeWork, of course, um, and and we ran into the same exact situation, which I, I guess I, I should have expected uh, when the coronavirus uh, hit the United States, and all of a sudden our bookings went from uh, it, it, we were doing some of our best months were January February of 2020, and then by March everyone was asking for a refund. Everyone was canceling, and and then eventually we, it was illegal for us to even operate our business. So, so what happened was we ended up deciding that the leasing model of our business wasn't possible. Not only that, we had to give up 
all of our uh, eight locations that we had under management. We paid early termination fees, closed them all, and basically we lost all four years of hard work that we had built up. So we had locations in Los Angeles, Sacramento, Portland, Oregon, Berkeley, San Francisco, San Jose, all on leases. And we had to close those locations, terminate the leases, pay everybody out, and basically close everything that we had spent the entire course of the business to build um, pretty much in the course of 30 days. So it was heart uh, wrenching in a lot of ways um, yeah, to sucks. watch that happen. But, you know, uh, in any kind of terrible situation like that, from a business perspective, it does give you the opportunity uh, to choose a new path. It, for- it forces you to choose a new path, which oftentimes we get so stuck in our ways, I think, that that deciding that our entire model is wrong and throwing it all away is such a painful decision to make that we as humans will shy away from that decision and we won't make it, even if it means uh, death, right? So I don't think we were ever going to make that decision, even though it was the right decision to make. We were forced to make that decision um, because of the pandemic. And what we ended up deciding on was not to give up and throw in the towel and just quit because we had lost everything, but to say, we had, we had believed, uh, you know, in, in a couple of months before the pandemic, actually, what, once the WeWork fiasco happened and we were reading all about that and kind of understanding how do we avoid a similar fate, uh, we need to start getting into management agreements. We need to start partnering with landlords who have vacant spaces who would like to make passive income and we fully manage that experience. Could we pitch this to landlords instead of saying, hey, landlord X, can we sign a lease with you for three years and then we're going to run our business model? Hey, landlord Y, uh, would you like, you've probably heard of Neighborly, would you like to partner with us in Berkeley and we can give you, uh, you know, uh, we, we do about a 50-50 gross revenue split on a management agreement. So, you know, pitching that to a landlord and saying, would you like to get passive income from your vacant space? We'll take on everything. We'll furnish it. We'll operate it. We'll do all the payments, all the customer experience. And at the end of the month, we'll, we'll ACH you half of the money that we make. Um, and that's not a guaranteed amount, but is it better than zero? Of course. So, so what we found, switching to that model after the coronavirus hit, was we said, okay, we've gotten rid of all of our lease locations. We no longer have any long-term liability can we now effectively pitch this business to landlords on a, on a revenue share management agreement? So we went, uh, we went pretty hard on that for about two months uh, in the Bay Area, pitching as many landlords as we could get a, a hold of, and it was very successful. Um, because, again, going back to the, the alternative, you're holding a vacant retail space, maybe it's been vacant for a year and a half, what do you have to lose? Uh, by trying something new, by hiring us, partnering with us, and, and seeing if we can bring you some passive income. And uh, what's resulted is, you know, we're paying landlords some, somewhere between 30 and 70% of market rent passively month after month, and they don't, they're not giving up the ability to long lease their location. So they keep it on the market. They're still touring it. Their brokers are still presenting it to clients. But however long that may take, 6, 12, 18 months, let us make you a couple thousand bucks a month for that time period. And you might have a hundred K in cash that we paid you, that we paid you and you didn't have to do one thing and you kept the space on the market. And so 
so that pitch was very successful, and we 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 now have thirty two locations. So we've actually quadrupled the the size of our portfolio since the pandemic happened, and we've gotten out of long term leases altogether. Yeah, that's a wonderful evolution, and of course, we need these crises to to cleanse ourselves, right? To 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 focus what we really want, what makes a lot of sense, which businesses makes a, make a lot of sense. And get rid of the risk if we can, and you know, you, what, whatever you structure now seems to be much more solid, uh, from my point of view. So, um, a lot of us probably look back to the pandemic, and as, as heartbroken as we are with personal loss, we, we we see that the economy adjusts and that we adjust and mm -hmm. that we find something better at the end. So there is a silver lining. Um, another problem I think that we were faced, and I don't know how you. I'm curious how you guys handle this is that signing up, so basically when you're a landlord, you you structure these long-term agreements because you don't want to deal with a lot of short-term churn. Mm -hmm. And it's not just that you lose revenue because it could be higher, because a lease rate could be higher. It's also there's a lot of management involved and just, you know, I want to figure out, are you, are you the right candidate or the right tenant for this particular space? So you try to push it out as long as you can and get a long-term deal because there is a lot of hassle involved. Mm -hmm. And when you, when you chop it up into time spaces, you obviously need a much lower acquisition cost, right? So you need to reach out to way more people and convince them. Obviously, this is a different product, so you have a different pitch. But the, the, the marketing acquisition cost, I always felt, can be stunningly high reaching out to the particular customer you want to have. Say you had that example earlier with the San Francisco location, you would need to know everyone around, well, that's at least in my head, everyone in a few blog radios who might be a good candidate, who fits into what you provide and then reach out to that person, which is not easy, right? It costs a lot of money doing that marketing. I don't know what you found, maybe you found some shortcuts because that seems to be this local marketing seems to be super expensive. Yeah, uh, that's a that's a great point and and an astute observation for sure. That is uh, that is part of the reason that we do quite well. To 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 be really honest, is that we we focus on providing an incredible uh, service and a space that is attainable and usable when no one else offers this. So in a lot of ways, we we are selling a product that doesn't really that no one else is selling. So we, we, we're, we're able to provide um, something so unique that, and there's enough demand, pent up demand for this latent, latent demand that isn't being met by any commercial real estate company um, in a lot of ways. So, so luckily um, by creating this product and this service at a price point that a lot of people can afford, it ends up being uh, a pretty strong word of mouth play. And, and also if you think about the, the viral nature of of a space itself being used quite a bit. Uh, so go, going back to you potentially having a, a live podcast at one of our spaces, let's say you wanted to bring together the judgment call audience for a day and, and uh, you know, meet some of your, your listeners and, and do something cool, interview one of your highest profile guests live. If you were to do that, you're most likely gonna bring 20, 30 people to one of our spaces. The address on that invitation is gonna say neighborly. The signage all over the space says neighborly, neighborly.com, rent this space, all these different uh, ways of, of telling our story. So we benefit from the fact that everyone who books one of our spaces is most likely bringing 10, 20, 30 other people to the space 
who then learn about it by nature of having to come into the physical space itself and being uh, told that it's a neighborly. So, so the branding of the physical experience and the space uh, ends up being a pretty strong advertising platform in and of itself. So we just always talk about how do we make sure when Torsten books this, that it's a, that it's a 11 out of 10 experience for him, that uh, when he's done with that, that he's happy that he wants to do it again, that he'd like to try another location, that he would tell his friends about it. Um, and as long as we're doing that, you know, we, we believe that we've uh, built something that, that has a lot of inherent value that can help people. And, and more than that, hopefully uh, one of the audience members who attends your event learns about us. They're on their phones at your event. Look it up. Cool. Oh, actually, my wife needed an event for her book club. She needed an event space for a book club or my my uh, my daughter is actually having her graduation party next month. She's graduating from Cal and we want a space for the family to come together uh, on a Saturday. I see that you guys have a lot of locations. So that type of um, that type of word of mouth and kind of reference model is 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 where we hang our hat. So we don't do any paid marketing. We don't do any paid advertising. Um, because to your point, it would be too expensive. We'd be throwing almost all of our margin away by buying Facebook ads. So, so what we believe is let's make the most affordable, turnkey, uh, amazing experience and space possible. And then you know, let's, let, let's let our product speak for itself. Yeah, that's quite amazing. If you can run a business this way, this is ideal. And I think a lot of businesses have found that creating digital marketing with a local business Extremely difficult. It rarely works, and still make money at it. You can mm -hmm. just basically raise venture funding and throw all that venture funding at Facebook and Google. It's possible. I don't think it makes a lot of sense. And just risking, you hold a whole lifetime value of a potential customer, and just have a tiny little margin left. That's right. And uh, the, I always felt, and I'm I'm still amazed by that. That um, a company like Airbnb, which has supposedly high marketing costs, they don't seem to do any traditional digital advertising, at least I never see it. Maybe that's because I'm already a customer and they figured that out so well, but they're never on in, in, in typical ads, they're never on Facebook ads. Um, they seem, I don't even know where their money goes, but yeah. <laughs> it doesn't Same. go into Facebook and Google. So yeah. um, it, must, it must be somewhere else, maybe you know. I, I don't know, it's a good question. Um, but I would, I would uh, repeat the sentiment. I, I, as an Airbnb user myself, I don't, I can't really recall being advertised to. Um, but I think in a similar vein, it's such a differentiated product that I like the product, I use it. As long as it's working for me every time I use it, I'm probably gonna go back. I haven't had one of those kind of nightmare experiences that, that people have had where it turns them off and they wanna go to hotels after that. I still use hotels. Um, you know, I don't think that Airbnb is the, is the best option for a lot of things, but it's a great option. And as long as it's a differentiated model and a differentiated product than a hotel, and I'm always going to look at it, right? I'm always going to compare. Let me look at the Airbnbs in Santa Cruz, and let me look at the motels and hotels, and let's see, uh, let's see what the options are. Um, so, so for me, I, I, they don't need to advertise or market to me because I just have them embedded in my brain as one of the best products for hospitality. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check there. And so I, I think that's part of the brilliance of what they do as well, is just making sure that it's an incredible experience and they're always making it better. They're always finding ways to... I wish the world to... of marketing would be so easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You make it sound so easy. Uh, uh, 
I mean, I think about I your podcast, right? It's like uh, the way you got There's me a dirty is secret. There's a dirty secret. Yeah, um, dirty, not in the sense of they do something that they shouldn't, but there is something they're not telling us, and they don't want to tell us. That's why it's such a, in this big, you know, header marketing. I don't know what it is. I have no idea. I don't. I don't have any insider knowledge into marketing. That would be just my assumption. Maybe that's just me. I'm too negative it, there. Either, either do I. I don't know the field well enough uh, as well. But, but you know, what I do think is. I just am such a believer in, in product and the craft of the product and just continuing to make the best service, um, item, idea, whatever it is, algorithm, whatever you're doing, if you're doing it the best, uh, you're not going to have a lot of problems and you don't need to worry as much about marketing if you're making the best thing. And, and so your podcast is an example. Like I, I wanted to be a part of it because I saw that Daniel Gross was a part of it. I saw that you had uh, the Dyson founder on, right? And I, I, I love uh, the Dyson company. And so for me, once I saw that. No, George Dyson is not affiliated with the company. He's a historian. But his, his father was Freeman or is, but he's not alive same anymore. Same family or not? Freeman Dyson. And he's famous because of the Dyson sphere. I don't know if you remember. That's this, oh, got it. This, this energy generating <laughs> shield around a star. So he's actually not associated with that famous vacuum cleaner. That's I'm else. so embarrassed. Well, either way, cool. Maybe there's some family I'm, I'm relationship. Sure, I'm sure he was. Uh, I listened yeah. to the Daniel Gross uh, episode, and and just as it basically as an example of what I'm trying to say, you've 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 got a, a product that's attracting, you know, high level talent, and it's something new. And I love the way that you that you ask the questions and you run the interview. It's very different than most of the podcasts that I've been on or listened to. I like it. Um, and so because it's different is the only reason I decided to be a part of it is I thought it was cool and a different experience. Um, so you didn't have to market, you know, to me, you have, a, you have something different that I like. And so I think, yeah, that's, I appreciate that. I think that's cool. I appreciate that. But I guess when a, when, a, when a company really takes off and has this viral growth, there is some secret magic, right? So I think what a lot of epidemiologists were talking about when the virus hit, a lot of this talk struck me as marketing talk from the Silicon Valley, right? So what is your or not? So how many recommendations do you get per single new user? And mm -hmm. how does it spread through society? At what endpoints does it stop, right? So when does it burn off, so to speak? And we know afterwards that Facebook spread pretty wildly. But we also knew at the time there were a bunch of competitors. Um, I forgot the, uh, was it, oh, there, was a, there was something that Google built or something Google, I forgot the there name. was Google Plus and there was MySpace and Friendster. Even before and, that, before oh. Google Plus, right? So w w these things also spread like wildfire, but then it suddenly stopped and nobody mm -hmm. really knew why. The founders didn't know because they didn't really know why they were act why users were coming in in the first place. They had an idea, right? They had a vision, but they didn't really know what convinced some of their users or why it suddenly stopped. So I always find this mesmerizing that we compare, obviously it's called viral marketing for a reason, but it's very, very hard to predict, very hard to jumpstart. And you never yeah. know when it stops. It might be going on forever, like Airbnb seems to be until everyone on Netflix, everyone is convinced, or it just stops at 2,000 people. And that's it. Mm -hmm. So I'm always a little suspicious of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and again, that's the, the only reason I care about uh, this, the customer satisfaction. It's just the yeah. only thing I care about. As long as That's every you can time control, you go, yeah. it's, the only, it's the only thing that matters. As long as, as long as you're having a good experience and you're willing to tell other people about it in casual conversation, yeah. we're, we have a business. As soon as that yeah. sentiment goes slightly negative, 
then yeah, your R naught is, is gonna go to less than one and the thing's gonna start petering out. It depends on the fact that one person who was there or associated with it told someone else. And, and, and I think as long as you're keeping that going, it doesn't always have to be somebody new. That's the good thing about uh, certain kinds of businesses. Like a lot of our, com- our, our users are repeat users. They'll book two, three times a year. They'll book for their mom's birthday party every year. They'll book for their company gathering every single year. And then they, you know, sometimes they start to book it for other things as well. But, but we become kind of an embedded service in their mind that they're going to constantly use because there isn't something better. So as long as we're hitting their expectations every single time, you're retaining those customers and that customer is going to forever be speaking your praises. And so uh, again, that's just all that I, and I think if you were asked Netflix that or Uber for sure, it was mostly spread through, you know, referral codes and things like that. But it was also mostly just word of mouth. I mean, once people knew, Hey, I can get across the city for $4 on this app, you tell 20 of your friends that at a party and they all sign up right there drinking a beer. Like I think that, that's at the end of the day, as long as you can keep that going um, and keep that promise true, then then you're you're fine. And so what's happening with Uber and Lyft, right? Now, now you're seeing their prices are two, three X what they used to be. And in a lot of ways, it's it's cheaper now to take a taxi. It is. Yeah. like, and, and I think that's crazy. It never was the case. And if that would have been the story when they started, it wouldn't have had the viral spread as it had. It had the viral spread because it was a wildly successful service offering that everyone could relate to and thought was positive. Now you look at it and you're like, nah, maybe I'll just take the BART or mm, maybe I'll just drive uh, yeah. because, the, because the service offering is different based on the price. I always felt SoftBank is giving us a huge subsidy. It, well, they get mm-hmm. all their money basically from the central bank in Japan, which prints money, right? And then it goes through SoftBank, goes to the Bay Area, and it's basically handed out the subsidies to local residents in the Bay Area. A lot of people think, look at the headline prices here, and it looks very expensive. But Uber was extremely cheap, and all the food delivery apps, mm-hmm. you know, there's been billions and billions showered on consumers in the Bay Area, because we know when it takes off here, we'll take off anywhere else. Well, that's maybe not true anymore, but that at least is the mantra. Another thing I wanted to talk to you about, because you mentioned Berkeley earlier, and you, I guess you are from Berkeley, right, originally? Um, no, I'm from Portland, Oregon, actually, but I did go to Cal okay. for my uh, MBA, and then I, I, we started the business in Berkeley. So our very first location with Neighborly was uh, in Southwest Berkeley. So one thing I always associate with Berkeley, and obviously it's related to the university, but there was always this strong sense of community. You know, you know Pete, as a, as a Pete's um, now a coffee mm-hmm. chain, he, he started the coffee house in Berkeley from his vision and became later instrumental in starting Starbucks, um, but do, they are different founders. And uh, there was always this sense of a strong community, people who would voluntarily talk to each other, people who yeah. would start a conversation and they would all enjoy it, not just, you know, go away, I have work to do, which seems yeah. to be the San Francisco mantra now. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so it, it created a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy that people came together kind of randomly, right? But they had a, a, a common interest that might that be a university party, might that be hanging out at a coffee shop, might that be going to other third places, other semi-public places. And when, when I see the state of communities, and I went to um, a couple of WeWorks, that's rarely the case anymore. I don't know if you see that and if that is a goal that you, can, you have in mind. 
but that community feel that we against the other, so to speak, there's a certain separation between us and um, others necessary. It doesn't exist anymore. No, none of the VWORKs have that. And they tried really hard. They have parties every night. There's free beers. There is free coffee. So the, they did all the right tools. But from my experience, and maybe that's because I'm such a weird introvert, I never thought there's a real community there. I thought, oh, these people are weird. Is that uh, something you yeah. try to foster? I don't. I, I, so I've never been a WeWork member. I've toured it a couple of times. I, I, I only absorbed the content that was being fed to me by the media mostly. I, I didn't actually really have friends who were members there, so I can't actually speak from experience about yeah. what the community is like there. But but when I toured it, yeah, I kind of felt a similar vibe, which is like there's a lot of people here who are super busy doing their own thing, and everybody's working here on their own project and. I'm sure there are times when they connect or they make friendships. I'm sure that happens like it is in the marketing, course, but yeah. it doesn't really feel like uh, that friendly of a place and, 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 and maybe nor should it. Like I didn't really understand that. Like why are you drinking beer at work with a random stranger? Like you should be at a pub or you should be at home. Like why? <laughs> what, why what? Both is good. Both is good. I feel, you know, <laughs> like a I, I, I didn't, the pub is as good as a random person in the office, especially if it's not the team member you already know for a hundred years. So I yeah. think both is good. There's a certain amount of serendipity. But I go to a random coffee shop, say, in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia, and I know I can have a deep philosophical conversation with pretty much any guest there. And that's, mm. that's given, right? So and that's, it's not complicated to talk to people. There's a real sense of community. It's, probably, it's mm -hmm. there without me. I'm just an intruder, mm -hmm. so to speak. But that never struck me as something that WeWork has established in the US. It, it's a little better outside the US, actually. So things oh. are better. But it's it's a general society issue. We don't have that anymore because we have this community online on in, in our social networks. And we feel mm -hmm. this is where it belongs, I think, in minds of most people now. I Yeah, I agree. I think it's one of the, the saddest things about the United States. It's one of the things that I'm, I don't know, most perplexed by. I think it's horrendous. It's 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 definitely one of our one of our worst traits and probably one of our most dangerous traits to, to our nation's health. Like it's not, I don't think it's a coincidence that we have the type of uh, violent society that we have. Uh, I don't think, uh, I don't think a lot of the things that we, that we represent are a coincidence. A lot of it is because we don't have a strong community. We, we, we decided in the 50s, 60s, I guess even back to the 40s, to start building residential communities that were not about uh, that were not about connectivity, and they were not about close relationships. They were about privacy. They were about peaceful uh, security. You know, they were about all these things, individuality. They weren't about uh, communal values whatsoever it was about the opposite of that how do i get mine make myself safe make myself quiet make myself uh uh different than everybody else and and that's the that's in a lot of ways that's like the american uh spirit is is being very individualistic very egotistical and 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 wanting things your way at all times and anyone who impedes on your sense of self or your sense of life is a intruder to your to your word and I, 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 so I've lived abroad quite a bit. I've lived in Haiti, Dominican Republic, Ecuador, travel a lot in Europe. And, and I don't get the, definitely don't get the same sense in Haiti and Dominican or Ecuador that your neighbors or people in your community or your city are, 
are offenders of your your privacy or offenders of your individuality or your 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 self-expression don't that's just not how people think about other people they they they're much more tolerant right they're much more curious they're much more willing to um deal with the fact that the crazy neighbor two houses down is a part of your life deal with it it's not it's not a big deal that's a, find comedy in it you know engage with them it is what it is that person is you know the crazy person in the neighborhood and they they're loud or annoying or whatever they do but like that's just part of your life i think here in the united states when that happens someone's like i'm gonna call the cops on that person i'm gonna call the hoa get this person removed i don't like this person i wish they weren't here they, they impact my quality of life it's just this very very kind of american idea that your life should be exactly how you want it to be and if anyone screws with that you should you should be against them and and, and i don't I, I think we I honestly think we reinforce that all the time. And I think we actually celebrate that. People think that's cool. They think that's funny. They think that's their right. They think it. And then when someone else does it and they say, Hey, I got that person gone. Cause I didn't like that person. They were an asshole. Then someone else is like, okay, cool. That's what we do. So I'm also don't like that person. I'm going to get rid of them. And, and it just yeah. leads to this really like dark social net where we just, Honestly, we, we, that's why we like the internet because you can just turn someone off. You can block someone. You don't, you don't want to hear from them. They don't exist. So we, that's a very American uh, ideal is to be able to have full control of your mental space and not tolerate I I anyone. Would, I would classify it as, as negatively because I grew up in Germany and I feel it's even worse there. So ratting out a neighbor who doesn't recycle properly is like the – the the hobby of pretty much everyone there. So you find <laughs> you pay thousand dollars if you put something in the recycling bin, which should yeah. kind of be recycled. It's it's really expensive, and they all do it. So I I don't think we are the worst, but we definitely have lost the sense of curiosity. We have an intellectual curiosity, but it, curiosity to the people around us that definitely has has gone away, totally. and, or has diminished. It's it's still probably there, but it's harder to get beyond that first bullshit test that people throw at you. Tolerance it's definitely too. still possible. And mm -hmm. uh, that was always this idea of, of, of the American idea of creating big connections, right? This this is like now such a famous white paper from, from the 70s, but that, that was this pragmatism, this, this strength of creating something out of these big connections that's completely something that most countries they don't even think about them it just doesn't exist as a mental picture right there's your mm -hmm. family and there's your work and then there is your your neighborhood and your small areas of your neighborhood and it's more commun communal I, I i agree with you but it isn't something that that people venture for so th this happens online and it does but uh, i was curious if you if you try to develop this actively and move people towards a real community in the spaces that you manage. Is that an option or people are just so secluded and there's COVID it's, it's not something you guys can spend time on right now. Yeah. Good, uh, good point. It's, 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 it's not something that we can probably achieve now or even you know, the last 12 months have been very difficult because we couldn't really even operate at all. Um, yeah. And people are still, especially here in the Bay area, incredibly sensitive um, and incredibly fearful still. So there just isn't any, there really isn't a lot of, uh, motivation or desire. I don't think from our users or, or the communities even to, to hear about that right now. Um, yeah. but, but, but I do think there's going to be a, a pretty intense reawakening for people when they come out of this, because a lot of people have gotten very comfortable with this 
idea that we don't go outside. And I think it's to me quite frightening. I think a lot of people like it. Um, and yeah. I, I, the ramifications of that sinking into people's long-term behavior is real. And I think it's, it's, uh, it's something we need to, to watch closely because, um, there are people, this has been long enough now where it's become a habit and it's become a way of life and changing that is going to be hard um, in the same way that it was hard to start sheltering in place and thinking about life where you couldn't do what you want. That was hard for a couple of months and we got used to it. And now I think it's going to be the opposite of people. A lot of people are going to be like, ah, I never want to go back to the office. I don't want to see people. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be in crowded places. I don't want to go to concerts. I don't I don't enjoy any of that and I never, and I don't really want to go back to how things were. There will be a lot of people. You remember that, that headline a couple of months ago when people said, Oh, once we are all vaccinated, then we have this big party. <laughs> Not that we are all vaccinated, but there's a good amount of people are vaccinated and there's more have to probably will get vaccinated, but there's no party inside or mm. especially no party mood. Right. When I, when I go around San Francisco, there's nobody's in a party mood. Everyone no. just looks down and just wants to run away from, from, from me and anyone else. Uh, this is really disheartening. So the, the depression is, yeah. is really set in. It is, it's yeah. probably different once people are comfortable at home, they're with their Netflix, they're good and with their Facebook. But that's not real, I feel. But maybe it's more real now than the real life. Yeah, that, that's what I'm I'm afraid of. Is that, and I think that's where, where it is going. Um, I do think this is kind of phase one of people settling into that way of life. And uh, you know the tech world as well as I do, which is that all that's going to happen is the tech world is going to serve these people more and more and more service offerings that are better, more um, inclusive, uh, harder to escape, more addicting, and, and they're just going to serve the needs of people who would rather live in the online world that feel safer. And I, I think that, that that's, uh, that's that indisputable that uh, the, the tech industry will just continue to build more addictive and immersive things for these people so that they continue to, to stay there. That's, that's, that's probably, you know, business nature 101, retain yeah, your have, customers. wouldn't have predicted this, but the, the matrix now seems to be the blue pill is what people want, right? They, they, nobody cares about the red pill anymore, so to speak, in, in matrix speak, right? So the, the blue pill is you stay in the matrix, you know mm -hmm. it's kind of not real, but it's comfortable. Mm -hmm. And the red pill is, okay, you want to see the truth, even if it's uncomfortable. And it seems we had this choice, and we obviously we continuously have this choice. And it seems this, I was really stunned how, how quickly people cloudified themselves. And I don't think there is a real way of going back. I feel most of the people who have that option want to continue to work from home, for instance. Yeah. They will want to go to the office maybe once a week, twice a week, and have a meeting there. But that's about it, I feel, for yeah, most people. It's quite surprising. In the end, it's good. It's more productive. It's probably yeah. also more comfortable. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I, I'm not. Uh, I think from a productivity standpoint and uh, commerce standpoint, I think there's a lot of very positive uh, developments that have been accelerated by COVID and, and that are permanent. So, you know, working less out of the office, commuting less, uh, traveling a little bit less on airplanes, uh, doing some of these things, maybe like drinking and partying less. Those are those are in general, pretty healthy uh, progressions for the economy and for individuals. It's, 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 the, the, the scary part, I guess, to, to qualify what I was mostly speaking about is, is, is the extreme of that. You know, the, the, the addictive kind of like uh, idea that this is enough for me and, and me being a human with a body and needs can be ignored. 
that 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 part of it is is uh is worrisome but you know what like every single <laughs> everyone has you know their addictions and their vices and some people you know are going to choose that now and that is an option it, it really wasn't it was a hard option to choose in the past it's been possible and um you know but i, I think it's now been kind of uh ratified in, in a certain way that it's okay to do that because that's how we all had to live for 12 months and so it feels normal and you know, I, I, I hope that at least, you know, we're building online communities and online tools and services that can help further engage people who choose to live that lifestyle because uh, that's a choice. At the end of the day, like you said, if they choose the blue pill, totally fine. Uh, that's their that's their option. But I, yeah. I just hope that we can build, um, you know, more options for people who choose that blue pill that are, that are, are continuing to be healthy because I just get really concerned about people's mental state and our inability to converse with each other or to be human, it degrades. Of course, it will degrade. If, if, if you don't have physical interaction with people, you will become worse at doing that. That's just nature. So if we, if we are seeing that trend and it keeps accelerating, it's, 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 it's not something you can just say, okay, hey, we found out that it wasn't good for 5% of our society to be online only, basically, because these people ended up developing mental illness or like depression or certain things that we didn't know that were going to happen, but these things happen and you can't just quickly turn, help that person become more human again, like very quickly. It'll, it'll be just as slow as a process as it was to become, you know, a blue pill, uh, you know, a blue pill taker. And, and that, I guess that's just what worries me a little bit as I just think that it's so we're as humans, we're very, uh, we have addictive personalities and if we find something we like and we're comfortable with it, we'll just continue that forever. And, I hope, I hope at least the tech industry, and I think it's doing better recently. I think there is a lot more focus on that of like, let's clean some of this up. Let's have more moderation. Let's have more mental health services. Let's like, let's just be a little bit more involved instead of this hands-off libertarian internet world where like anything goes and anything is okay. Still, we need to, of course, protect freedom of speech, but we also need to be more aware internet citizens and, and be providing structures and platforms and, and guidelines that help people that are on the fringe that are maybe becoming bad online citizens. And how do we help those people instead of just like turn a blind eye, which I think has been the last 15 years, just whatever. Someone's saying some scary stuff on the internet. Well, there's five other people saying scary stuff with them and that's just their world. So, oh, well, I think now we're well, like, going to take that more seriously. Uh, yeah. I'd say that the internet is the, 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 the the only shot of freedom that we've got the last 15 years, so to mm -hmm. speak. So it is, it, it definitely comes with its downsides. Well, when you look into Reddit, I, and it's very cynical, right? It's, it's very, lots of uh, men, young men, it's very cynical. There's definitely a negative attitude. But on the other hand, they are allowed to do whatever they want and they, mm -hmm. they can interact with each other and they move markets out. That's how big mm -hmm. it's gotten because it's just so many people. Mm -hmm. And uh, definitely there is a problem of motivation and there is a problem of what's going on in the fringes and mental health is a huge issue. A huge issue. Mm -hmm. I fully agree with you. But we need an outlet for creative freedom. And totally. it must be something new, creative, also in the sense of potentially money-making, which is important mm -hmm. for men, a little more than for, for women. Do they have this, we all have the same problem. But we, we need to create a Wild West from time to time. And now Elon mm -hmm. Musk wants to go to, to Mars. <laughs> Maybe that's the mm -hmm. new Wild West. I don't know if it's going to happen. But I think society has this freedom online. And I was coming to Silicon Valley 15 years ago. And one of the business angels who invested in us said, well, guys, why are you here? 
all the all the normal businesses have already left. Only the billion dollar unicorns are here to stay. So what are you wasting your time on? I'm like, no, no, no I don't want to raise a couple billion dollars. I want to want to build a business. I said, no, that's just that's not going to happen. And he was he was wise enough um, to see that um, just after. 2003, 2004. I found this quite stunning as a foresight, and I think this, this, this freedom has now moved and, and generated um, an impact on society. A lot of people didn't predict back in the 90s. We wanted it really quickly; it didn't happen. People got a little disappointed by that, and now it's this huge impact on people's mm -hmm. psyche that nobody has any control over. Mm -hmm. Some of it is good, some of it is terrible. I was in Marin. I don't know. <laughs> That's it's just really strange. I was in Marin on a hiking trail. It's literally you're far, far out, spaced out. I don't know, maybe 20 people on a hiking trail. And literally everyone had two masks on. I'm like, really? That's how you go into nature? That's a little much. Um, I felt, um, I don't know, um, I thought it's pushing it a little. On an airplane, yes, 100%. That's maybe a precaution to take. But out into nature, I don't know. It I think that's what's a little overdone. Well, that, that's what's been hard, I think, about this whole thing. Uh, because uh, you know we're running a physical business, of course, and and uh, our entire livelihoods are based on the fact that we're we're as neighborly. We're we're saying that being in person with your with your physical self and other people is important. That's just that's part of. If that isn't important, then we don't have a business. So of course, from a self interested perspective, I believe, and our company believes, and I promote the fact that it's it's good. For humans to be together i think what's been hard though to that exact point that you're describing i felt that same thing what what coronavirus uh anxiety has brought out amongst us is that it's the same type of um otherness xenophobia kind of that we were discussing about housing and about neighborhoods and about community covid protocol has allowed people to have very strong opinions about safety and about um, uh, proper procedure or proper proper way of doing anything really um, and so and so I think what I've noticed at least is that like it doesn't matter what side of the fence you're on with something that's happening that involves covid uh, it, it, so both sides are usually wrong and 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 that's like been frightening for me because what it's exposed in, in my mind is the fact that really all we want to do is be entrenched in our own mindsets and our own frame of thinking. And we want someone who's doing the opposite to stop or to do something different. And I, I very rarely have seen two people who disagree on a certain COVID situation, talk about it yeah. and explain themselves and like, be like, okay, well, I, I, I understand. It it's crazy. I it doesn't, it's like, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's just like more like, well, if I want to have double masks and you don't have a mask, I, I literally hate you. Like, what is wrong with you? You're killing people. You don't care. You're reckless. Yeah. You're a fool. You don't, you don't believe in science. You're, you're disingenuous. All these things that, like, you can, you can immediately think about someone if you think that they're lax about COVID or they don't take it seriously. Um, and then on the opposite side, when you're someone more like, it sounds like you and me, who are a little bit more, um, I guess, liberal with, with our practices and, and, and beliefs as a, pertains to the pandemic, then sometimes then I then I'll look at someone who's wearing a double mask in a situation like that and be like, that's totally unnecessary. Uh, you don't need to do that. Why are you doing that? It's 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 scary and it's not necessary. And you're kind of promoting this idea that isn't maybe real. 
please don't do that. You know, I wouldn't say that to someone who's wearing a double mask. That's their decision. But it's the same type of mental. Their thought about me was probably the same thought I probably have about them. Is like, why are you doing that? It's not necessary. Don't do that. It's I guess weird. most people are, are pretty pretty well adjusted by now, and it's it's generally a white majority. They don't go crazy on you, but there's always one. Karen, so to speak, right, who, who is going crazy on you. But I've been um, in all my, I go on a run pretty much every day um, and uh, go towards the Golden Gate Bridge. And I think I've ever came across one or two people who, who complained, right, who, who wanted to call the police. But mm -hmm. that's it. And that was in, I don't know, 300, 400 occasions. So mm -hmm. I, never, I never felt that the majority of people is... It's taking this really at face value, but they, they, as you say, they, they avoid any confrontation because they know it doesn't lead anywhere. Because it's very easy to 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 encounter someone who is not up for a rational discussion. Yeah, like most of us avoid that topic. And I think that's what it. At the end of the day, that's what it like uh, brought to the to the forefront for me is that we really, uh, as a society, at least in the Bay Area, I guess I'm only talking about our, you know, local region here, but. What I've realized is that we aren't up for, we really aren't up for a discussion. We're not up for rational debate. We're not up for uh, friendly disagreement. And we're not really up for conversation about things that we, uh, at face value, disagree with. If you're wearing a double mask and I'm not wearing a mask, we are enemies and there is no discussion about what's right or wrong because we're entrenched. And I think that just like has really freaked me out in a lot of ways because that's how the political landscape has been, you know, for the last seven, eight years, and uh, still is today. But, uh, and that's at a national level, but, but then when you see even people in your neighborhood who have the exact same political beliefs as you, who are uh, vehemently against, you know, maybe the way that you deal with COVID or they deal with COVID, uh, you just, you, you end up realizing that it's, wow, it's like, it's, it's maybe more, more of a deeper issue than it is just the political uh divide it's like it's maybe more of just like we are pretty uh bad right now at having rational discussions with people we disagree with we we, we can't tolerate um we can't tolerate a different point of view very well and we've we've, yeah. we've somehow i don't know lost the ability to have human face-to-face -face conversation to talk about something with someone who i, I let's say we totally disagree on something uh like well, most I don't know. I'm, I'm finding that we're pretty, losing that skill. Yeah, they're not that far away from each other, I think, in practical terms. But I think what we all have in mind is this, this, this duality of the algorithms, right? So there's always someone on Twitter who goes all the way and says, basically, the US, if we do this, we are a communist country. And mm -hmm. sometimes I actually must feel I agree with these people, or even do this is crazy. And mm -hmm. then on the other hand, there's people, if we don't do this, we basically, we're all racists. Yep. And also sometimes I find myself agreeing with them. So there is always someone who takes it all the way, which is good in the end. We need these extreme voices. Mm -hmm. I don't, in my mind, they shouldn't go away. But in our brain, because there's, they're basically they're getting 99.9% .9 of all the likes, That's their it. message goes everywhere. That's and it. in our brain, that person next to us is just like this caricature that we have in our That's mind it. from Twitter. Yep. And we think, oh, man, if I make this argument, they go completely crazy on me. No, they yep. won't. Most of the time, they won't. They Some won't. will. But most of the time, we, we are all very practical beings. So we avoid this debate because we feel like, whoa, what do, what do I do if this person goes so crazy on yes. me about that topic? Because yes. that's what I would expect from that Twitter personality. Yes. And I think this is what, what, what 
the people still make the right rational decisions. I think we are not that bad with COVID now. We come out of it pretty well, right? This is a big mm -hmm. topic for us, but I think we be coming out of it definitely better than Europe, and at least for the time being. But we all dance around these hard questions all the time, which we shouldn't. But before you had the extremes weren't as extreme, right? Because you yes. didn't know about them. There was one dude mm -hmm. in DC, yeah. who, who cares, right? I was concerned about my neighborhood. Not yeah. true anymore. I, anyone yeah. who has the most scary opinion is now all the time in my, in my head. That's right. You That's know, right. We, 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 it's like a mental tax that we carry around. That's it. Totally agree. I mean, like if I think about my parents, you know, how they must have been living their lives when they were my age. I'm 35. Uh, they moved to Portland, Oregon from Wisconsin. And uh, whoever lived around them or the people that they probably talked to most and the people that worked at my dad's law firm or my mom's uh, insurance agency were the people they talked to during the day. And for the most part, that would be it besides reading the newspaper. Uh, and you can't interact with the newspaper. And so I think what's, what's, what's yeah, absolutely what's driving that is is the the distribution of radical voices and radical ideas and I, I agree with you it's not bad necessarily it's important to have those 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 ideas out there but when they are being funneled into our distribution of information at such a high rate and taking up so much uh mental space for us that's uh there, there there's something definitely that's going to affect our our ability to communicate with people who we perceive to be one side or the other. And, and to your point, I think when you actually have a conversation with someone who you probably disagree with, you'll, you'll find most likely that uh, you don't disagree as much as you think that you probably did. And that person is actually uh, quite agreeable with you. you. You were happy to have yeah. that conversation and you learned and, and actually that person wasn't uh, nearly as bad as you thought in your head when you observed what they were doing. Um, and, and, and that's uh, for me, like at the end of the day, what, what, what worries me about the internet, um, because when I lived in Haiti, for example, in Dominican Republic, uh, seven years ago, uh, the people who I talked to were the people on my block, everybody was outside, good weather, everyone's got tank tops and flip flops on and drinking a beer, making dinner, going, walking over to see your neighbor, kids running around, you know, just a, a very general world community. Um, you know, that, that isn't in the cloud and isn't on the internet. They're, they're, they're mostly physical 95%. Um, and so, so the, the, the conversations and the relationships that are built in those worlds and those communities are, are so much different than the relationships that I have in the Bay area. The relationships I have are, are, are very, very shallow compared to that because I, I don't get as much physical time with, with people and the conversations that I have don't get to be as deep because my brain is on my phone. My brain is in, in my email. My brain's, you know, on this podcast, what, what have you. I'm not present usually with my physical body yeah. uh, as most, I think, communities are. And so we just have to, we just, we need to realize that there are those types of changes that are happening to our brains and our, and our social abilities as we continue to invest more and more of ourselves into the internet. We have to continually, I think, fact check our own selves to say that like, hey, Every time you're doing this and everything you're absorbing in this internet world, uh, it's 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 a bit radicalized and it's a bit uh, it's media, right? They they sell they sell yeah. the most crazy idea you can think of. That's how they make money. So remember that you're spending more and more of your time in in crazy ideas and less in like the everyday the everyday conversation. I think there is a silver lining to about that, and the I was chatting with Edward Tanner, and he told me whenever you look into 
the phases of time when, when people complained about information overload and polarization that, that's been before, right? So different mm -hmm. times, um, just as recently with radio and TV, people were really worried what's going to happen when everyone watches too much TV. And the same is true for newspapers. And then we can go back to books and then we can go back to the Bible. There's always a time when people say, oops, there's way too much information for me to digest. They complain about it. They polarize. And then it, what, what, it, what it is on the flip side is specialization. So when people go through phases of extreme specialization, of increasing specialization, we clearly are in one, it's undeniable. Mm -hmm. And we will go through this the next 20 years all the way to the singularity because AI will take all these jobs from us, which is great. We mm -hmm. will find other jobs, much more value-added jobs than what we have right now. But during this phase, the kind of disassociation from each other is quite normal. Like people yeah. switch around who they associate with, friends, family, um, everyone gets run through new filters, and but it also makes people curious again once they come out of their depression. So I think it was peak 2020. I already feel it's better now. So I feel I see like people talking to each other when they walk their dog. That didn't mm -hmm. happen a year ago or even mm -hmm. two years ago. They mm -hmm. were completely isolated. And I think yeah. this is is going to take a while. It's going to take 10 years, but there is, there is something really positive at the other end because we're all going to sit at home, do nothing, and make a ton of money. I think yeah. that's what's going to happen in 20 years from now. Which yeah, is great. Okay. I mean, I'm, I built my little castle in France and sit there and make a lot of money. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I really have no, no worries uh, about that. At the end of the day, I, just, I guess I just want to go back to Haiti and sit in a plastic chair and have a cold beer and you know, hang out with my five neighbors and two dogs and sit in the sunshine. I mean, that's like, I hear that, that, is, that, I hear is, that is definitely impossible. And if that's, the, that's, if, that's the, if that's the United States in 20 years because of singularity, fantastic. And I was in Bogota and, you know, Colombia is a country that always used to be a more neighborhoodly, more talkative. And mm -hmm. it's not Brazil, but it's definitely known for that. And I was in Bogota and I was shocked. It was so much more American than the US. I felt like I'm in DC, wow. if, if not worse. I'm like, holy yeah. smokes. So it's coming. It's coming yeah. for everyone. It's just yeah. we're a little ahead. And that obviously puts us in a weird spot right now. I totally agree with you. Americans are strange yeah. right now. It's very strange. Well, to a better future, Ben. Thanks for absolutely. I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, thanks, thanks for Torsten. joining me on these a uh, little more crazy topics at the end. Absolutely, yeah. It was it was a blast, and thanks for having me. Uh, and if you ever want to do you know a live podcast like we talked about, you know who to call. I'd love to love to support Judgment Day. I will. Judgment I love that idea. <laughs> I love that idea. Ben. Sounds good. Thanks, Torsten. All right, talk soon. Take it easy. Right, bye bye. bye.